Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. My name is Tyler, and we will be going verse by verse uh, through the Word of God today at Fontes to the fountain to be nourished and sustained by all that God is. We are continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it has been it's been hard, it's been challenging, and there have been spots where it's been lighter than others. And the words of one Old Testament professor that I studied under at one point, um, um, we are at that point in the semester where we have walked, we have crawled, and now we are running. And what we've come to in chapter 9 is a big portion. There is some big meat here. Um, and I felt it was a disservice to the, the text to break it apart. And so we're just going to have to push on through. Um, it will... Um, it'll level off a bit um, as we continue through Ecclesiastes. I will be starting chapter 10 um, the following week, Lord willing. And then it's just 10, 11, and 12. But chapter 9, and we are continuing the application portion of Solomon's um, consideration of wisdom. And he has been laying out some hard truths considering wisdom and death and riches and these kinds of things. And now he's... Um, drawing the application here. He's putting it into practice here. So chapter 9, he writes, Indeed, I look all this to heart. I took all this to heart and explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked. For the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes the oath, so it is for the one who fears an oath. Um, this is a concept we've seen in earlier portions of Ecclesiastes. Um, Charles Spurgeon once said that six feet of birth make all men equal. The reality is that good people, quote-unquote, reap the same as, quote, bad people. And I think that's, those are subjective terms when we speak in human um, concepts of goodness and wickedness, that those are kind of subjective, that, you know, the Bible's very clear that we are all um, sinners, so we are all wicked where it counts, that the human heart is full of deceit and wickedness, who can understand it? And so, 
the what we call good and what we call bad in that human terms of it's kind of flippant and relativistic they are both equally dependent on the providence of god the sacrifices and moral ex excellence of one do not spare him from death or make him immune to death the reality is that the the people that do what is right and the people that do what is not right will face the same fate being being death medieval art often depicted people being summoned by death often met with reluctance this is not something they wanted this is not something they were necessarily ready for it was almost a surprise and at the time of the plague, also known as the Black Death, the medievals had a saying, Memento Mori, which is, remember, you must die. And it became a practice contemplating um, their impermanence. It became something they did. It wasn't just something you said, Memento Mori. It was something that you practiced. This was an act of contemplating your impermanence. We are contemplating the fact that we do not have eternity on this earth. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for all men to die once, and, and then cometh judgment. Um, Genesis 3 says that the ground is cursed because of you, speaking to Adam, the first man. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow, until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore we are at home or away. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to God, to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Diagnosis is clear. We are all afflicted. Death is something that every single one of us will experience in some form or fashion. This is not something that we avoid. We can escape. Um, we don't know. And that's one of the great tragedies of Ecclesiastes 9 to Solomon is that we don't know. We don't have the next chapter laid out before us of what comes tomorrow. We don't know what comes tomorrow, if it is, as he says, love or hate, if it is continuing to live, or if we will die. Verse 3 says, This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. And that seems, honestly, that seems very strange for us to call that an evil. Now, he's speaking very much like a cynic again. He's taken the, the position of the cynic sometimes. And while we have to take this as inspired scripture, this is entirely true and entirely profitable to know God. We've got to put this in that context, in that literary context, that this is poetry. There is an evil that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And that seems to be... Often the way we look at things today is there is evil under on this world. It's not fair. It's not this. Um, we, can, we, get, we very much take the same position as, as Solomon sometimes. 
And one commentator writes that the problem in Ecclesiastes is that there seems to be no formula that allows people to determine the consequences of their works. Just as it says in Psalms that it rains on the just and also rains on the unjust, so here we see that it, there is death for the just and death for the unjust. And in our human understanding of things, that doesn't always seem like what we want. That doesn't seem fair. Why do the, the good and the bad experience the same fate? Why is there no distinction? Why is it that the, uh, the, the powers that be, why don't they pay it forwards? And this is where we see um, concepts like karma and some of this um, come up in modern philosophical thought. But Galatians does say, um, that which you sow, you shall reap. But there are times, um, and this is one of the hard truths of Solomon, that sometimes things don't go the way we want them to. Sometimes the, the wicked are rewarded for their wickedness, and sometimes the righteous are punished. Sometimes the wicked get away with things, and they're, um, they die, just as the righteous do. And so we have this problem it seems in our as we try to reconcile this with things like God's sovereignty and his goodness and what exactly is the purpose of being here if it doesn't matter and we can easily delve into nihilism with this doctrine of nothing that nothing really matters nothing's of consequence so do what you want and it seems like that's where Solomon is going but let's keep let's keep reading verse 6 Sorry, verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There's no longer a reward for them, because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their envy have already dis disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them, and all that is under the sun. Go, eat your bread with pleasure, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun, all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life, and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And so the view we have of our actions doesn't always give us the whole picture. Our perspective is often limited. How does God view my choices and my undertakings? Does God consider what I do to be righteous? Solomon says that that seems to be a mystery to man. What occupies the mind of God? Many people today feel the same way. In the age of deconstruction, many feel that God cannot be truly known by the means that the church has claimed for centuries, that God remains a mystery. But Augustine, um, theologian a long time ago, saw God's providence and mercy as a beautiful mystery in comparison to his own wickedness. He says, For thy hand, O God, is the mystery of thy providence. In the mystery of thy providence did not abandon my soul. So too, from, that, from the heart's blood of my mother, through her tears, sacrifice was offered to thee for me every day and night. And thou didst work with me in wondrous ways. Thou didst do it, O my God, for with the Lord shall the steps of man be directed, and he shall like well his way. 
Otherwise, help procure our salvation without thy hand, remaking what thou hast made. What lies ahead for the people of God? The Old Testament saints were unsure. That largely remained a mystery to them. God had not revealed plainly to his people the afterlife until the way was revealed in Christ. The person who spoke the most of hell and judgment was Christ, was Jesus. It has been said that the most, quote, God of the Old Testament thing recorded in Scripture is actually in the New Testament, when he says, Go ye into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. That is more, quote, God of the Old Testament, to use the modern um, terminology, than anything we see in the Old Testament. When it comes to judgment, nothing is more severe than what is promised by Christ. Matthew chapter 9 says, If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go into hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So, this is a delightful passage, isn't it? That there is no memory for the dead. That they, they die and are forgotten. So, go eat your bread with pleasure, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. What do we do with this? It says, eat that which has been given to you. Take joy in what God has given you. For your works have been accepted by God. And that points us beyond the things, beyond the stuff. It points us to a spiritual reality. Verse 11. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to be swift, or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For certainly no one knows this time, like fish caught in a cruel net, or like birds caught in a trap, so people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. So what we're, what's being painted here is a skewed view of what matters, of reality. We're seeing an exhortation to keep the main thing the main thing. Solomon implores us to keep the main thing the main thing. Wisdom is the goal, and we have seen that that is only obtainable in Christ, and in the grand scheme of the fallen state of this world, wisdom goes unnoticed, but the wise person expects this. I have observed this, that this also is wisdom under the sun, and it is, it is significant to me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, surrounded it, and built large siege works against it. Now a poor wise man was found in the city, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So if our pursuit of wisdom is focused on the right things, 
we're not going to be popular necessarily. Um, James 3.13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct he should show that his works are done in gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your, ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. There's a, there is a source of wisdom, and is God. Wisdom is from above. It is pure and peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, fruits, unwavering and without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So our pursuit of wisdom is fixed in our pursuit of Christ, who makes us wise, and an, and an eschewance of the world. We must be made new to be wise. And that is the reality here. With keeping the main thing the main thing, when we are truly pursuing what is good, what is wise, we will, we will realize very quickly that we are not wise, that we are not good. The Bible is very clear about the state of the human heart. It uses very strong language. It says we're dead in sin. We are in bondage to sin. That we are by nature children of wrath. Simply put, we don't want God in our thinking. We want a worldview that is divorced from this idea of God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the image of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. And it says that God gave them up to a dejected mind. That is where we live. That is where you and I come into the story here. It is a dejected mind. It is is consumed with pride and jealousy and everything that is not of above. Everything is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wisdom that is from below. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. And it is a testament to the content of my heart when I chase these things. But Jeremiah, as I quoted earlier, says that the human heart is full of deceit. It is wicked beyond measure. Who can understand it? It says in Romans 3 that we are sinners by nature. Romans 3, Romans 6, these are hard passages about our sins. About the fact that all have sinned. And have fallen short of, of the glory of God. Romans 6 tells us that the, the wages of sin, the wages, that is like a payment. It's like a transaction. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is life in Christ. And that is not something you and I could earn. That's not something we could acquire or purchase or anything else that is solely given to us by Christ that when we when we went astray when we forsook God and it, and as it says in Jeremiah that we created for ourselves cisterns of our own broken cisterns that hold no water when we forsook the ways of God for for filth for things that cannot replace him cannot be substitutes for corruptible shadows christ entered the scene 
he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And the Bible says that he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he lived a perfect life, perfect 33 perfect years, kept the whole law, knew not sin, no defilement was in his mouth, and he goes to a cross. And he dies the death that should have been on us. Because the wages of sin is death. But it says in 1 Peter that he bore our sins in his body. Why? So that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. And we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he makes peace by the blood of his cross. And so he rose from the dead because he is God. And he rose from the dead triumphant, having conquered sin, having conquered death. And now he sitteth at the right hand of the majesty on high, wherefore he shall make, where he shall judge the living and the dead in the final judgment. Because it is appointed unto all men to die once, and then comes the judgment. And that is where we enter the scene here, is we die. And then we go stand before Christ. And we are judged according to how we operated, how we, how we lived. Um... And the reality is that none of us would stand in that judgment. Because if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark his iniquity, who should stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared, that thou mayest be taken seriously. And so Christ died for sinners, that we would be reconciled to himself. And so he makes us new. He gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit within us. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and we begin to bear the family resemblance as his adopted children. And back to Ecclesiastes with the first couple of verses in chapter 10. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink, and so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise person's heart goes to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense, and he shows everyone that he is a fool if a ruler's anger rises against you don't leave your post for calmness puts great offenses to rest what we have here is we need to be made pure we need to be purified by the things of christ haggai uses a similar illustration building off of the language of the levitical law if some bread um, touches your robes, does it become holy? No. But if your robes come into contact with a carcass, it becomes defiled. In the same way, we may stumble into sin, but we will never stumble into righteousness. That is an entirely different concept altogether. We don't just kind of slide into um, righteousness into being made like Christ. That is a constant abiding in Christ, surrendering myself to him. Because the reality is, I am not good. But Christ makes me good. And that will continue the rest of my life until I am united with him in glory. In an environment where sin does not exist. But now, 
what is laid before me is a journey of being made whole, a journey of being made like Christ, of going away from the world, looking away from the filth, and beholding the things of Christ. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that beareth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Also goes on to say that the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind driveth away. Therefore the, the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the wicked, but the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. That is the diagnosis here. Our ways will perish, and us with it, if we do not come unto Christ and be made, be made new. What does that look like? What exact, what does that look like? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Let's consider the Sermon on the Mount as we draw to a close. Picking up in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And that word blessed, that is a difficult word to put in English. And modern American language has kind of corrupted this word and is so materialistic now. With the way we look at it, we think material blessings, material wealth, material this, material that. Or we just render it as happy. But it's not ha-ha happy. Um, it's deep spiritual rejoicing. But it also implies the favor of God. These are the kinds of people that are favored by God. How are these people blessed? Because they have Christ. Because Christ is these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. When they are spiritually bankrupt, when you realize that you have nothing that you bring to this table, but Christ has brought you to this table anyway, you are blessed, you are favored by God, because you are not leaning on your own ability to come to God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins of their need for Christ, for a Savior. We can go through this list that same way. This is not a bunch of morality statements that we can affirm as Christians, or even as, as non-Christians. The reality is that this list doesn't make sense. 
these are not the kinds of things we would list as, quote, blessed people. Because this only makes sense in Christ. The carnal thought mind, the carnal mind has no concept of being poor in spirit. Has no concept of the humble inheriting the earth. Of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because these are foreign concepts to a, to a dejected mind. When we are in the world and of the world, this does not make sense to us. This does not jive with how we operate. But when Christ takes us, when we are Christ's, when, we, when our life is hid with Christ in God, as it says in Colossians 3, this becomes the way that we think. Not because we are better, not because of our own virtue, but because Christ is bringing every part of ourselves in subjection to his lordship. And the lordship of Christ makes this make sense. Because this becomes us. We are the poor in spirit. We are those who mourn. We are humble. We hunger for righteousness. We are merciful. We are shown mercy. The pure in heart will see God, the peacemakers. This is where we live in Christ. But we cannot live this outside of Christ. This is not attainable outside of Christ. Because these are Christ. The whole scripture testifies about Christ. It's the testimony of the Son, of the personal work of Jesus Christ. And the only way for us to see these things tangibly is to come to Christ. Not because we want the stuff, not because we want to reap the benefits of these things. These are the byproducts of coming to Christ. It's not the idea of Christ that saves us, it's the person of Christ that saves us. And if we're coming to Christ for the benefits alone, we've missed the point entirely. But the reality is, we must come to Christ. We must be made new. Because the way I am today, I cannot stand before God. The way I am outside of Christ, I cannot stand before God. That my own righteous deeds are but filthy rags. But Christ came to clothe me in white garments as his own. And so as we close today, ponder your standing. Ponder who Christ is to you. Are you in Christ? Are you keeping the main thing the main thing, being Christ? Is Christ the main thing? Or is it just a benefit? Is it just a means to an end? Because a means to an end in this scenario, is meaningless. If Christ is not the object of your faith, then he's not the content of your faith. If we are seriously abiding in Christ, we're not focused on the stuff. We're focused on Christ, on who he is, what he's done. Am in thyself that you be in the faith. It says, as the Apostle Paul once said, we must be sure that the, that the thing we believe in is Jesus and not the things of Jesus. We're not saved by morality. We're not saved by, quote, wisdom. We are saved by Christ. I have been reading much in the book of Hebrews lately. And Hebrews has just come alive these last several weeks. One particular passage 
in Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teachings about ritual washings, laying on the hand, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those who have, for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed, and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly beloved friends, in your case we are confident of things that are better and that are certain, and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust, and he will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated by his name by serving the saints, and by continuing to serve them. Now we each, now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Hebrews implores us multiple times to be sure that we are truly in Christ, that we are not just following a pattern or um, some moral prescription. And the context of Hebrews is persecution, is martyrdom, it may be coming. There is coming judgment on the Jews through the destruction of the temple. And there are some in the audience of the book of Hebrews that are that are contemplating going back to that Jewish way of operating, of putting going back to the temple, back to sacrifices and all of this. And the author of Hebrews is very pointed, no. How could you experience such a great salvation and walk away? Let us leave the basic things and go on to maturity. Let us continue to explore the, the riches of Christ. Let us continue to savor Christ, even when it is hard. Because the ones who savor Christ are the ones who are truly in Christ. It says in one of the epistles of John that they go away from us, but not of us. And that is one of the great problems with a lot of the modern church is that we don't consider Christ. We don't consider the content of our faith. That we um, we check off a box that I did this, so I am a Christian, and we don't see the Christian life as a constant abiding in Christ, even when it's hard. It's all it's all about me, as opposed to I need Thee every hour, most gracious Lord. And so, all this to say, get to know Jesus. God bless. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. 
Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4